Reggae Uprising podcast family and welcome to another episode. Now if you are fresh and new to Reggae Uprising podcast it is all about connecting the African diaspora through wisdom, overstanding, inspirational stories all backed by a soundtrack of sweet reggae music. So each and every Wednesday we feature a new guest who shares their works, their wisdom and their life journey alongside seven reggae selections. If you haven't already subscribed to Reggae Uprising Podcast, please do so wherever you are listening. And if you want all those added extras, all you need to do is go to www.daniel.live. So that's www.daniel.live. So if you subscribe there, you'll get all those added extras, you'll get music, you'll get so much positivity via that website. So like I said, subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and then please also subscribe via Live. Now, we also, as a new edition for this year, we're also available on Spotify as well. So if you're listening via Spotify, welcome. But if you want all the extra added music, like I said, you can find that via the website and via any other podcast platform. As well as featuring new guests every week, we also have our special editions and special series. So please look back through our catalogue of episodes because we have so much knowledge, so much wisdom to be shared to empower you on your own journey as well. For those of you that are dedicated subscribers and listen every single week, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for sharing these works. If you featured as well on Reggae Uprising podcast, give thanks for all the knowledge that you have shared with all of us. More, more love to all of you. Right, we're going to get started with this week's guest's first selection, which is Beres Hammond, Doctor's Orders. I feel a shiver. I'm feeling down and out I'm a true believer I know what it's all about I know it's not the flu It's all because of you I feel a trembling when I wake Come back and give another beret I feel a shiver Running up my spine This hurting, hurting feeling It hits me all the time Every time you go away, seems I can't live another day Oh my bed it is so cold, you got my happiness on hold Oh I feel a ton of joy, and my heart gets warm Thinking about you, holding you, squeezing you in my own This week's guest is founder and CEO of Black Mama's Birth Village. I would like to welcome Lorna Phillip. Greetings and welcome. Greetings. Thank you so much for asking me on your show. I'm so excited. We're so excited to have you and for you to share all this wisdom with all of us. But before we get into the interview, can you tell us why you chose that first selection that we just heard, please? Oh, do you know, this is this is one of my favourites. This is what I call big people music. And now I'm at the age where I can I think I can kind of safely say that I've reached the the big person age. Um and this reminds me of many years ago. I don't go out anymore. Um <clears throat> too old. Um it reminds me of when I used to go out uh, clubbing or go to like, you know, house parties that we'd have years ago and just hearing these kind of tunes um it, yeah it brings back all those memories of you know the rubber dub and the and the <laughs> and the dancing up in the corner and it, it brings a smile to my face so as we ask all of our guests here at reggae uprising podcast can you share with us your heritage please yeah, so um, mom and dad, um, both Jamaican-born. Um, my mom passed away, um, gosh, 33 years ago. Uh, I was born in Birmingham, so born in Birmingham to Jamaican parents. And can you share their history a little bit with us? Um, were they? What was their journey from Jamaica to here? What was their life like in Jamaica? That What were their works in Jamaica? 
Yeah, so um, my mom, I think my mom came first possibly um, in her teens. Um, and so she had, she actually had a, a pretty okay life, you know, I, I guess by today's standards, um, probably, I suppose, quite, quite middle class uh, Jamaican upbringing. Uh, she lost her mom really young in life and then her dad remarried. Um, you know, stepmom wasn't so great. Um, but it was actually her stepmom and dad who came to England first and sent for my mom and her brother. And they came over um, on the ship, uh, which I still got the, the ticket for. Um, I think it cost about £74 to come over on the ship um, via Italy. Um, and when she she arrived, she, she told me that she was just struck by how cold it was and how, how grey it was and how miserable people looked. And when she started school here and they, you know, doing PE, she was just like, you know, the whole thing about getting changed into little short shorts and a little T-shirt to go outside and play sports. She said she was always kind of bunking off sports because it was far too cold to be dressed in shorts and a T-shirt. So that was quite quite a shock to her when she came. Um, My dad, on the other hand, uh, when he came over, he would tell the story of um, coming over coming up to Birmingham by train to meet relatives because they were going to house him and how um, when he got to the train station he got to the platform and he needed to go to the other side of the platform not knowing there were stairs that take you up and over the platform so my dad being my dad actually jumped down onto the rail tracks that were live And people around were like shouting, saying like, get out, get out, you're going to be electrocuted. So that was a bit of a shock to him. Um, Yeah, and again, the whole kind of like the housing. So being in a shared house, um, just having the one room, you know, with my mum and dad and, you know, us two kids came along, me and my brother. And that was, you know, the stories of that, the, the, the kerosene lamp. You know, the not being able to use the kitchen, having everything in one room. Um, it was hard times. They had a real, a real tough time of it. Um, when they came, they both worked in factories. And then my mom trained to be a nurse and my dad became a bus driver. So earlier on when you were talking about your mom, you mentioned there about the ticket. You still got the ticket um, for the, the boarding of the ship. Is there a reason for the route from... Italy to here that you know no, of? I don't know I'm just assuming that's the way it went um I don't know why that was I don't know why it it went to Italy and then came to the UK I'm not sure but I was just really interested to kind of find that out you know I was going through her stuff I mean every now and again I kind of pull it all out and have a look through all the stuff um that she left behind and seeing that ticket it's all kind of falling apart now but I was like wow it came it, it came via Italy I'm like I don't know why I guess that was just the route did they ever make you aware of how long it actually took, that, that journey? Do you know, it, I think it actually is in the ticket and I just can't remember. Um, but I'm guessing, it, I'm, I'm thinking it was quite a slow journey. You know, not like today where we hop on a plane and you're you're there in the Caribbean in like eight, nine hours. Um, yeah, I mean, several, several days, if, if not weeks, possibly. Um, yeah, uh, it took a while. And did they ever make you aware of their love story? So how they actually met and their, you know, their first few years together? Do you know, no, I never found out how they met. Um, what I do have, though, are some old photographs of them in the 60s. Um, you know, the kind of photo booth photographs. So like you, you've got my, my dad sat there with my mom on his lap and they're smooching away in the photo booth. And that's really nice. Uh, to look back on because sometimes you know even as adults we don't we don't often think of our parents of having that that relationship before we came along and what that might have been like and 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 how lovey-dovey they probably were um so I've actually got evidence they were very very smoochy and (laughs) lovey-dovey in this photo booth so that's nice to look back on and did they ever share with you I don't know when you were younger or maybe when you were older their experiences of their life in Jamaica before they came to the UK is there any you know cultural things that they shared or maybe family stories that they shared with you Yeah I mean family stories and things like school life you know school days my dad in particular um, I mean, he would say today he was never a big lover of school. And, you know, school was quite, could be quite brutal. You know, your teachers were, were there with their corporal punishment uh, back in the day. And, 
my dad would uh, tell stories like, you know, he'd turn up, or it, well, when the school inspector was due to visit, the teacher would, <laughs> would tell the kids who weren't really the, the high attainers in the group, they would tell those kids not to come into school today um, because the school inspector's going to come along and, you know, make sure the kids are, are, are doing well in school. So the kids that weren't doing well were told to stay at home. Um and my dad told a story of him being, you know, not the, not the sharpest knife in the block, he would say, uh, back then. And on test day, if they had tests, um, he would copy the person next to him, but he would even copy the person's name. And that's, of course, how the teacher knew that he'd, he'd actually cheated and he would get a real beating from the teacher for, for copying. Um, my mom, um, she told stories of actually her stepmother, um, you know, not being the kindest of stepmothers uh, and having kind of poor treatment from her. And, you know, if my mom were to, to retell a story, you know, being in big people's business, as we call it, uh, her stepmom would actually, um, would rub pepper, would rub pepper into her eyes, you know, for telling those tales. Um, so, you know, even though I'm sure there were fun times in their childhood, they also had some real, real hard times. And for their experiences, you mentioned a little bit about their first experiences coming to the UK. Are there any other stories they shared about how they kind of, after the the initial experiences in the UK, how they kind of adjusted or maybe um, how they overcame certain adversities in the UK or their successes in the UK that they were really proud of? Yeah, I guess, you know, it was survival back then. And I think to survive the system here, you had to switch. You had to be one way in work and one way when you're at home, you know, which must have been really, I don't know, really hard, like mentally hard, um, you know, to take all the, 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 I don't want to swear, but to take the rubbish from your colleagues and from your um, your bosses, your managers, must have been hard. My mum was a nurse. So she would tell stories of, you know, being a nurse on the ward and um, the matron at the time or the ward sister really coming down hard on the black nurses. And then you've got the patients, you know, the patients saying, keep your hands off me, you you black B-I-T-C-H, you know. So there was all that to deal with. Um, so they'd come home, I guess, come home and offload. I don't, I'm not sure how aware we were as kids of that, you know, when we were smaller, but... You know, it was hard and they worked, they worked really hard. I remember me and my brother, my brother was seven years older than me. And I remember us being, you know, home alone quite a lot because mom and dad were out working. So my brother was always the one to be looking after me. Um, and, you know, back then you'd ask neighbours to keep an eye out for the kids. Um, but mom, would work, mom and dad were working shifts, you know, so we were often home alone doing our own thing and playing. You know, it, it was it, we had a great childhood, but that's how things were back then. I worked hard. We, we, we lived in a, um, you know, when we were like, just coming up to school age, we were living in a, in a, in a masonette on the um, second floor um, in, you know, quite a rough area of Birmingham. But they worked so hard and they decided that we should leave Birmingham, leave the inner city and uh, move to a new town called Redditch. Um, which which brought its own kind of issues for us as black kids in school, but they were doing it because they wanted um, they wanted better for us. They wanted us to be able to you know roam around in, in you know in the in the green lands and in the parks and and not be kind of bound up in the city. So I, I understand why they did it for us. They wanted better for us, but it came with its own set of um, challenges as as black kids in in mainly white schools. Now, before we move on to your next selection, I just want to hear about what were your favourite um, foods growing up? Like, what were the um, dishes that were cooked in your household? Or what are the dishes that you smell now and you're like, oh my gosh, that reminds me of home or that reminds me of <laughs> mum or dad or they passed down this dish to me and now I'm the expert in it. Tell us about that. Okay, so there's quite a few. The, the two that come to mind is soup, Saturday soup. Now, as kids, and this is what kids are like, I wasn't really keen. I wasn't really keen on soup. Um, I wasn't really keen on trotters. Sometimes we get we get pigs trotters on a on a on a Saturday. And I remember um, being sat there at the table and my mom insisting that I I eat my dinner. 
and I'd be sat there for so long that especially things like your your pig trotters or your cow foot, it was it would congeal. So, you know, A, I didn't like the taste of it back then, but then when it got cold and it was like all gluey, <clears throat> that was really unappetizing to me. So I'd be sat there for many, many hours having to, you know, try and force down the soup. But now when I smell those foods, I'm like, yeah, this is me. This is what I want. And it's kind of like, it's, it's the kind of foods that almost like touch the soul, you know, that's, that's kind of, they're so, they're so kind of nurturing. It brings back lots of memories. Um, and those are the kind of foods that I really love now. Um, and with my dad, my dad is the is the fried dumpling king. Even to this day, I have never seen fried dumplings look so pretty or taste so nice. And um, when I go to visit him in Jamaica, he's always bringing out the Dutch pot and he's kneading dumplings for our breakfast. So those are the two things that um, that come to mind immediately. You know, there's two foods that I, that I now have uh, come to love. And what's your signature dish? What is the dish that everybody asks for when there's a family get-together? Oh, gosh, there's so many. I must say, I can throw down in the kitchen. I'm pretty good in the kitchen. There are so many. Um, one of my favourite things to cook is probably brown stew chicken. Um, but I also make a really mean um, mac and cheese. And I love a barbecue. So barbecue chicken, jerk chicken, mac and cheese, all the salads, all that kind of stuff. Um is great because it also means that it's summertime if you're out there barbecuing with the family and you know family vibes music laughter drink food you know what more could you ask for really we're going to move on to your next selection which is junior mervyn police and thieves why did you choose this please well this one reminds me of my brother so he was the one in our house that played the music he was the one that had the record player and um along with my dad uh, those two they have all the vinyl so i remember hearing this growing up and i guess it's more in in kind of more recent times thinking of things like you know uprisings you know 81 uprisings in in brixton in handsworth you know with like leeds liverpool manchester um, and so when I hear this this tune, it actually it actually makes me feel like I'm I'm rising up, like you know, against injustices. There are so many in the world. We you know recently we've had many many police injustices. We've we've had you know the, the racism, the violence, the, the socially uh, social injustice. And when I hear this tune, I think of all of that, and I actually feel quite uplifted by it. Here we go with Junior Mervyn, Police and Thieves. Police and Thieves in the street Fighting the nation with their guns and ammunitions Police and Thieves in the street to Redditch. Can you tell us of your journey through education, what that experience was like for you and going into your adolescence? Oh my God, it, it was it was, it was was okay in some respects, but in some respects it was pretty awful. So you imagine now, we're now in Redditch, um, I'm now, I think I'm about five or coming up to five and uh, starting school, my brother's, my brother's in, um, in school as well and you know, in Redditch back then, there weren't many black families. And so in all the schools that we attended, we tend, there was maybe only three or four or a handful of like black um, kids and, and um, South Asian kids, um, teaching staff all white. And so we were subject to a lot of racism, a lot of name calling, um, often isolated, you know, people not wanting to, to play with us or, you know, when we had this thing, well, we had this thing, you're probably too young to, to remember, we had this thing called country dancing in school where, God knows why, we had to um, 
kind of like, yeah, country, kind of like American line dancing type thing, uh, where it would involve holding hands. Now, as the only black kid in the class, you know, your, the other kids in the class didn't want to hold your hands. So there was all that to contend with, you know, and then the name calling and even from the teachers. So I had teachers saying things like, you know, looking at my cane road hair, do you, does, does your mom knit your hair with knitting needles, you know? <laughs> These are supposed to be like educated people. Um, in PE, I remember, you know, taking showers, for example, and, you know, you, 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 you drop your towel and run into the shower and you run out again and get your towel. And the teacher saying to me, oh, my God, Lorna, you're brown all over. You know, she was like surprised, like, like the brown stopped at my neck, like at the collar of my shirt, you know, and underneath was white. It was like, wow. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things that we were subjected to. So when it came to um, the time to either leave school or go to the sixth form, I could not wait. I could not wait to leave school. There's no way I was going to stay on another two years and do my A-levels. Um, so, you know, I, I, I attained quite well in school. You know, I got my, back then it was, it was O-levels and um, CSEs. So I left with my bag of, bag of decent O-levels and I went to college. And I didn't go to college in my, in my city, my town of Redditch. I went back to Birmingham. I chose to go back to Birmingham as, a, as an early teen or a mid-teen and um, attend college there amongst other black kids. And I just couldn't wait. We're going to move on to your next selection, which is Touch Me in the Morning, Big Youth. Can you tell us why you chose this selection, please? Yeah, this one is from my dad's own um, collection, um, his vinyl collection. I have, I've actually got this on vinyl um, and I've recently bought the, the CD. I'm still playing CDs. I'm, you know, a bit old school. Uh, and this is just one, again, that really brings back memories of my childhood, um, listening to my dad play records, um, going to family. So we'd, we'd go to, like, cousins' houses, um, maybe in the school holiday, and the big people would be there in the front room, the front room where the kids weren't really allowed, and they'd be playing on their gram, they'd be playing their records on their gram and would hear the tunes. So this is the one, this is one that I really remember um, fondly. And it's one I even play now in my CD player in my car. Here we go with Touch Me in the Morning, Big Can you tell us more of your journey from college, um, where life took you, um, your experiences and where you chose to go in terms of your vocation and your passions? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> I did my first college course in, in Birmingham. So that, that's when I left school. Um, ended up actually leaving Redditch. So again, as a teenager, the, the commuting back and forth to college was just too much. So I actually uh, rented a room uh, the first room that I rented um, it was a, yeah, a pretty pretty rough area of Birmingham uh, I was really naive, I didn't know a thing so I was really green and didn't even ask, didn't even think to ask who else was living in this shared house <laughs> um, and it transpired that it was actually a, a house for um, Irish builders uh, who would just come across to England you know, work in the week and then go home uh, generally at the weekend and so I was, the, I was the only woman in the house and I was in the attic, up in the, in the top, um, which I shared with mice, um, which I didn't realise until I moved in. Um, so yeah, fun times, fun, 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 fun times. Um, finished my college course and then did another, I think fairly straight after that, I did a nursery nursing course for two years. Um, 
moved in, you know to several places in Birmingham, still sharing houses with people. Um, yeah, and that started my my kind of long career in working with children and families. So I did my my nursery nursing course from eighty five to eighty seven, which I absolutely loved. And shortly after after finishing that, I did a, a temporary job as a nursery nurse in a day nursery. And then I moved to London. So in my late teens, I packed my bag and I moved to London and I worked in, in various um, children and family settings in London. And how did your works evolve from there, from London? Right, so I started as an agency worker and then got a, a permanent job um, in a children's home. Uh, and again, you know, didn't think to ask, well, what, how old are the kids? Went up for the interview, got the job, and then found out these were adolescents. And I was barely, I think I was about, I might have been about 19 then. Uh, and so we had kids in there that were like up to the age of 18. So I was like working as their support worker um, and barely, you know, a year or two um, older than them. So that was kind of strange, but again, really enjoyable. Um, I did that for several years uh, and then moved on to um, being a parent, a child, no, sorry, a parent assessment worker in a residential unit and then on to the NSPCC. Um, and by this time now, I have my two children. I'm a single parent of, of two kids. I bought a flat in Brixton. Um, so, you know, doing pretty well back then. Um, and then I actually thought, I really, I really want to go to university. So I applied for a place at uni back in Birmingham. And um, in 1994, I moved back to Birmingham to start my, my uni course with my two kids. And what did you choose to study at university? I studied uh, in humanities, uh, English education and sports science. That the kind of thinking was that it was actually a teacher training um, college that we were at where we got our degree. And it was the thought that when you finish your degree, you'd go on and do a, a one year postgrad uh, to become a teacher. But quite early on into my course, I thought, actually, no, I don't want to teach. But I did my degree and I finished it and I graduated. And why did you change your mind and what did you change your mind to? Uh, I just thought, oh, you know, being a teacher, it's not easy. You know, people think, oh, it's great. You have all the school holidays. But it, it just became apparent that, you know, when you're working with children, it's not just teaching. You, you know, you have to be almost everything. You have to be a, a bit of a social worker. You need to be maybe, um, you know, kind of a nurse. You have to be a teacher or rolled into one. I mean, by then I'd already worked in, in various kind of uh, children and family settings. So I knew what it was to work with children and to also work with their families. Because, of course, as a teacher, you're not just having contact with the kids. <clears throat> you're also having contact with the children's um, parents and carers. And I, I know how hard that can be. So I thought, no. That's not for me. And I don't want to go on and do another year um, at uni because it was hard, you know, a single parent of, of two kids. Um, I also had to work as well. So working, I actually worked full time and attended uni and single parenting. It nearly, it nearly did me and nearly finished me off. So I just couldn't do another year. Um, so after that, I, after my degree, I just continued working in, again, various um kind of settings um, until I, <laughs> it's a bit weird, but uh, back in, I think it was about 1999, I became a living caretaker at a college, really different to what I'm used to. So I was working um, in, a, in a health centre at the time, supporting um, children's development. And I saw this kind of job on the board um, at my workplace, you know, they wanted a living caretaker. I thought, oh, great, living, that means no more rent to pay. Brilliant, you know, because it's hard to make ends meet when, you've, when you're a single parent of two. So I applied. I applied to be a living caretaker. On the day I turned up, you know, all, all suited and booted in my, in my, you know, my dress and my heels for my interview and, yeah, sat down, had the panel interview. That was, that was okay, no problem. And then they said, right, now it's time for the practical. I'm like, practical? <laughs> and they led me into this room 
and around the room there's various um, jobs to do. And I didn't know that I'd have this. So I'm there, I see my dress and my heels, and there's a ladder. So one of the jobs was, you know, to get up the ladder and to change one of those fluorescent light strips. And I've never done that in my life, never. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a good go. So I got the strip out of its box, kicked my heels off, climb up the ladder, but I'm nervous. And my legs were shaking. I'm sure the ladder was shaking as well. <clears throat> and the guy was like, you know, just do this, do that, and then it'll slot in. So I put it in and boom, there it was. I changed the light strip. Then it was to uh, wire up a computer, you know, kind of just kind of wire up a computer, ready for it to to to, um, to be used. Yeah, no problem. Could do that. Then it was to drill holes in a wall and attach a wooden baton and make sure it's straight. So there was the drill, there was the spirit level, there were the screws, there was the the, the screwdriver. And I'm like, I have never drilled a hole in my life. But you know what? I did it. And I did it and it was straight. And I got the job. I got the job and I moved in and I was a college caretaker for, I think, about four or five years. From that, um, I actually remained in the house um, and was I went down to part-time because I applied for a job um, as a primary school mentor. So back working with kids again, um, um, part-time, um, no, sorry, full-time, and then at the weekends I was doing the caretaking. So I was working a lot, um, but it meant that um, I could have the school holidays. I worked in a school, so I had the school holidays with my own kids. Uh, it meant that I still had the, the house rent-free. Um, so it kind of worked well, but it was it was really hard work, um, really, really hard work. Uh, and of course, as a living caretaker, when the alarms go off at night, you're the one who's got to go out and deal with um, if there's been a break-in um, or to call out the police. Um, and that was tricky. That was really tricky because the alarms went off a lot. And I'd go out there armed with my broomstick because I'd just take a broomstick with me just in case um, and, uh, and deal with um, what was happening. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was challenging. It was really challenging. Um, but went from there. Um, went from being a primary school mentor and I got a step up. Um, I was now uh, a Sure Start Children's Centre Deputy Manager, which is a big step up. And I left the college and I moved to another area, um, rented a house and then eventually bought it from the landlady. And that's where I am right now. We're going to move on to your next selection, which is Skanking Sweet by Chronix. Can you tell us why you chose this? <laughs> this one reminds me of holiday. So once a year, me and my hubby, um, uh, apart from in the pandemic, of course, uh, we go back to Jamaica and, and have our lovely holiday. And I remember one year we went back and it was this tune playing all over the place, literally everywhere you went, you know, in the taxi, everywhere this tune so this one brings um memories of, of lovely holiday vibes here we go with chronics skanking sweets under the pressures of a life and it tough no stay down mama time pick it up now bother with the down full style strictly up full vibes i pick it up when the bills them the rent and the mortgage due yeah yeah when me chalice when your best friends are gone and it's only you like a past on of the music Skanking sweet Everybody wanna feel like real Forget your troubles and you rap with me You know feel a reggae music sweet Yeah, yeah sweet Everybody wanna feel like real Forget your troubles and you rap with me You know feel a reggae music sweet Yeah, Now you mentioned that you have two children of your own can you tell us as we're going to get into your works that you do now in just a little bit but can you tell us firstly of your birthing experience what was that like for you yeah sure yeah I mean you know nobody no one ever forgets their birthing experiences it's, it's really important so my daughter um, I had my daughter at 21 um, a pretty pretty straightforward pregnancy I was living in Brixton at the time and um, suddenly went into uh, premature labour, uh, which is a story for lots of, of black moms. We, we um, tend to have more uh, preterm labour. 
um, here in the UK. So went into premature labour. Uh, nice. So she was born nine weeks early. Um, I was totally unprepared. Um, you know, naive. You know, even though I was a nursery nurse, you know, qualified in looking after other people's kids. But it's a different story when you've got your own baby um, at home. So that was that was tough. That was tough. And about that time as well, my mum passed away. So it was all a lot of trauma um, going on. Um, and then for my son, I had my son four years later. Um, a bit more savvy when it comes to um, looking after babies. Um, yeah, actually, on the whole, the experiences were good. You know, I, <clears throat> I had um, straightforward... Uh, vaginal births, um, you know, no no birth trauma to speak of. Um, so on the whole, yeah, pretty good births. Can you share with us your transition from the works that you just told us about and into the works that you do today? Yeah, sure. So it was in 2004-05 when I was a Sure Start deputy manager that I um, I remember coming across all these moms that would come to the, the you know the program and say talk about their birth stories and at that stage I've got two kids but hadn't really realised how important people's um, birth experiences were to them and I was thinking why do they keep coming back and telling us about oh you know this happened and I felt disappointed and I wasn't very well supported and I heard about doulas back then. Um, but, you know, it was kind of like a seed that was planted, but I did nothing with it. I'd heard about doulas and then just kind of shelved the idea. And it wasn't until years later that the idea kind of popped back up in my head. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to train to be a doula. I would love to support, you know, women and families to have better birth experiences and tell a better birth story. So I trained. I became a doula. That's probably about 2012. And I worked solidly as a doula, a birth and a postpartum doula um, for about, yeah, about about 11 years Um, and loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. But it's it's hard, you know, the the older you get, it's quite hard on the body. People think, see it on Instagram as a quite of a, you know, it's a kind of a glamorous thing to do to be there at people's births. And yes, it's a real honour to be asked to be there at somebody's birth but it's also quite hard on the body because these births can be like 12 14 hours plus um you try and catch a nap you know you don't we don't work in shifts you know we're hired by the family privately and paid by the family we don't work in the in a, in a shift pattern so it's not like you do 10 hours and go off and someone takes over you know you can be there for the whole of the birth which means either trying to stay awake or catching a nap on the floor sometimes if you're at a home birth or trying to catch a nap in the back of your car you know before you drive home making sure that you're safe to drive home so it can be really hard um and in my career as a doula um most of my clients were black and brown families and we know here in the uk that um you know when i first started you know we found we knew that um Black moms, for example, were around about five times more likely to die in the perinatal period. That's the period around birth. So that's maybe just before birth or during the birth itself or shortly after birth. The figures now are slightly less, but still, they're shocking. And so as I came to the end of being a traditional doula and going to birth, I decided to hang up my doula hat and to start the birth village. I wanted to really reach out to more black moms and really focus on black moms uh, to have better births. And I started Black Mama's Birth Village uh, two years ago. Um, And it's a space where you can be safe and be your authentic self. Just come and take a breather, come and and share experiences, come and learn some stuff about birth, uh, pregnancy and birth. Um, and yeah, we're, we're two years in and it's going really well. We want to delve deeper into the works that you're you're doing with the Black Mama's Birth Village. But firstly, mm-hmm. you mentioned there about um, getting your certification as a doula. Um, for any women that might be listening, because we have listeners all over the world, what certification is involved, um, you know, in becoming a doula? Is it is it 
different in different countries. Can you share your knowledge on that so that the women that are listening, if they are looking for a doula, what they should look for? And then maybe possibly women that are thinking of becoming one need to think about possibly. Yeah, sure. So if you're thinking to become a doula, please know that you don't need to do training. You can opt for training. I opted for training. We've always had doulas, though. If you think about what a doula is, it's that wise woman, because it tends to be women. They do have a few um, uh, male doulas, but it tends to be women. Um, It's that wise woman in the village. It's that wise woman that we've had in village life for many, many years who, when you were in labour... You would send someone to go and call that wise woman who would then come to tend to you in the home generally back then um, and tend to you during your labour. We've always had them. So first of all, you don't have to be certified. If you choose to be certified, there are loads of courses out there. I always advise people who get in touch with me to have a look at what's out there, make a short list contact the course provider and have a real good chat with them. See if how they teach and what they teach. Make sure it aligns with your own values and that whatever they have to offer kind of resonates with you. Um, I also teach new doulas myself. And what I say is the course that you choose should have, you know, cultural safety, uh, respecting people's um, birth traditions. That should be a thread that runs all the way through the course from start to finish, Uh, not just a bolt-on at the end, a bit of a nod to cultural safety or cultural um, birth traditions. It should be a thread that runs all the way through the course, so look out for that. If you're looking to hire a doula, again, have a look online, do do a Google search. And there are lots of um, um, doula directories out there online. Have a look at those. Have a look, look at what people are saying. Look at the doulas' social media. You know, how, what, how are they presenting themselves on there? Make a short list. Write down a list of questions and contact the doulas on your short list and ask all the questions and then choose the one that best aligns with you and what you want. And for those people that aren't too sure on the definition of a doula, I know you explained it there, but in terms of what they should expect their doula to do what are the expectations that or what are realistic and what are unrealistic what um yeah okay yeah so so doulas on the whole are are not clinicians even though you do have some some doulas now who are trained midwives and have changed profession and are now doulas but on the whole we're not clinicians we don't test we don't do any testing we don't do any advising so when a parent comes to you and says you know um can you advise me on, for example, I don't know, immunizations? You know, should I get my baby immunized? Well, that's not for us to say. You know, what we do do is that we signpost you to evidence-based information, so you can make up that. Um, you can make a choice for yourself because we're not there to make your mind up for you. We're not there to birth your baby for you. We're there to yes, we give it education. So, for example, when you hire a doula. Um, You can expect to have some one-to-one birth education and preparation with them. Find out how the body works, how you can make things easier for yourself during labour. Look at, you know, birth planning, writing a birth plan with you. But at the end of the day, it is your birth. Um, uh, Your doula can advocate for you and teach you how to advocate for yourself. But it will always be your body, your birth and your baby. And what would you say is the average time for a doula to be with a woman? Is there an average time, an expected, you know, roundabout time? Well, it all differs. So it depends. First of all, it depends when they hire you. So, you know, when I was coming towards the end of my doula career, I would have people hiring, hiring me as soon as they peed on the stick and found out they were pregnant. Um, and then you also get your, your lastminute.com clients as well. So it all depends on when, they, when you're hired by the, by the family. So it's expected that, um, you know, whenever they hire you, you know, you'll do your, your birth prep sessions with that family, but you'll also stay in touch. You'll obviously attend the birth with them. And then you can decide whether you want to offer some uh, postpartum doula support. So I'm also a postpartum doula, which means that, uh, you know, you work in the home with the family and you kind of mother the mother. You know, you're not there to take over the baby or again to advise 
how to look after a baby, but, but you're there to to be alongside that family, you know, supporting the mom, the partner, um, in, in how they look after her and care for their baby. Uh, and that could be demonstrating things like bathing a baby, it could be providing feeding support, it could just be a listening ear. That's a big part of what we do as doulas, is to, is to listen, you know, not so much talking, but listening, deep, deep listening. And how how available should you expect a doula to be in terms of, for example, say if there's a mother that's a single mother and they don't have any um, family to support them in that way, is it something where they can just call their doula up at any point and ask advice? Are there certain boundaries? How, how does oh, that aspect yeah, work? Yeah, there's got to be boundaries. <clears throat> Again, people assume that we are these kind of fairies that literally are switched on, you know, and can respond to things and we're there to rescue and have a cape. It's none of that. It's none of that. When I teach my new doulas, we talk a lot about having boundaries, loving boundaries, because you love yourself. It's important to have, you know, a sense of self worth and a self-love and we love our clients and for us to demonstrate that love we need to have boundaries otherwise you become resentful if your client is calling you at midnight to say they've just belched (laughs) and they're worried that's not the best use of of our time and our energy and it breaks our sleep so in order to demonstrate love we have boundaries so we tell our clients, okay, I'm available between these hours. You can call me or you can drop me an email or drop me a WhatsApp. Between these hours, of course, if it's an emergency or if you're in labor, you can call me any time of night, night or day. But if it's just something that can wait until the next day, then make it wait until the next day. Otherwise, you become resentful as a doula and you're not going to be really, not, you won't be really there, you know, kind of like properly there and present when your client needs you because you're going to be really kind of fed up and a bit resentful. So loving boundaries are really important. We're going to move on to your next selection, which is She's Still Loving Me by Morgan Heritage. Can you please tell us why you chose this selection? <laughs> this is another one. You're going to be sick of me hearing, uh, saying these are, these are big people tunes. Again, this is the one that I, I hear now when I go and visit my dad. You know, lots of Morgan Heritage. I love, I just love it. It's just... When I hear it, I just think, I think about my dad, I think about family life, I think about Jamaica, I think about holidays. It just really evokes some really lovely memories for me. Here we go with She's Still Loving Me by Morgan Heritage. She's still loving me Though I've caused her so much pain Done my share of wrong, my share of wrong. Time and time again. But you told us a little bit of the works that you're doing with Black Mama's Birth Village. Can you go more in depth with us and tell us more of the services that you offer, the experiences that you've had with your clients? Yeah, sure. So it started off it started off life as a Facebook group, um, a private Facebook group, uh, you know, for Black pregnant women. Um, you think that's quite simple, but um, so there are various questions that people have to ask. Just three simple questions you have to ask when you want to join, when you're asked to join the group, one of the questions is, are you black and pregnant? And um, you'd be shocked, maybe you're not shocked, at how many people try to join who are not black and pregnant. We've had white midwives try to join. And when I message them and say, "Um, you're not black and pregnant, this is just for black pregnant folk. Yeah, but um, I just want to come and listen. 
or I just want to come and observe, or I just want to come and learn. So I make it very clear that it's not some kind of viewing gallery and not some kind of petting zoo for people to come and sit and listen, you know, because it totally changes the vibe. It's supposed to be a, a, a group for black moms or moms-to-be, and when you have, you know, a white midwife wanting to join and sit in there and watch and observe, it completely changes the vibe. It's supposed to be a safe space where you can be yourself and you can talk about anything. So so what, what I'm really loving is that moms that have joined the group and really, you know, engage in it, um, they're having better birth experiences. We've had moms in there that are on their fifth pregnancy and they've joined the group and they say, this has been my best birth to date because I'm now informed, I feel supported, I have my village around me because it's not just about me supporting, it's like a, it's peer support, it's a real community vibe. Um, and so we're having some great births in the birth village, um, which then led me to develop the membership. So we've got that free Facebook group for those who really want to focus on preparing for birth and parenthood. Um, we have the membership now, which I've developed, lots of paid for service. So in that, it's it's literally um, a lot of learning content that's been uploaded, uh, mainly video content, not only from me, but other, other black um, birth workers. So we have a trauma specialist, we have a physiotherapist, um, we have a nutritionist, we have so many people uh, in there who are offering their um, expertise and they're all black and I love that. Um, so when you sign up for the membership, you get sent out my, my favourite birth book, I've created a journal which I've printed, that gets sent out to them as well and then they have access to all of the learning content and each month we have a Zoom meeting together, you know, small, in small group Zoom where they can bring any issues that they've encountered um, that month, they can ask any questions, they can share information and with that support goes on until their baby reaches three months of age. So I'm taking them all the way through pregnancy, birth and the first three months of parenting. And anybody that would like to be involved, where would they find you? Where would they find the group? How would they find out more about what you offer? Yeah, sure. So um, the membership itself is blackmamasbirthvillage.co.uk. On Facebook, if you just look for Black Mamas Birth Village. On Instagram, I'm at black underscore mamas underscore birth underscore village you'll find me I'm there you'll find me and can you share any um obviously that you're comfortable with and your clients would be comfortable with any stories from black mama's birth village that you know uh, maybe presented something that you weren't aware of or maybe you helped somebody in a way that was really profound in their journey yeah sure I mean easily I mean um, not that I make a habit of it, but in the in the Facebook group, for example, I was just scrolling through, you know, as you do late at night on your phone, or scrolling through, and a message popped up in the Facebook group, a mom in labour, and um, she says, I'm in labour, and uh, they're denying me pain relief. And this is the one of the things that we found um, amongst black moms in labour, that as black moms, we can be denied pain relief. And so I'm like, oh gosh, I can't have this. I can't go to sleep on this. And so I messaged her and said, look, DM me and um, I'm going to send you my phone number and either you or your birth partners to call me straight away. And it happened and, and we had the call and we managed to resolve the issue, shall we say. And she went on to have a really fantastic birth. Now, if there's not somebody there at the end of the phone or someone to say, well, look, you know, have you tried this or have you tried telling them this? You know, then these things, you know, can really escalate. And, you know, we know that in labour, if you are unduly stressed, if you are struggling to manage um, the pain, if you have your caregivers who aren't listening to you, that can generally mean that your birth goes down the pan and can go a different route to what you're expecting. So it's really important that, you know, that people are listened to. They are, they are um, treated like humans. And they're given the pain relief that they are entitled to. 
So, you know, just a quick phone call uh, had made a massive impact on her birth. Another one um, literally had a half an hour Zoom conversation with this mum. She'd had a previous traumatic birth and wanted things different this time. And I took her through some techniques she could use, um, some things for her partner that he could use because it's important that you, you have a birth partner who can protect your space. And she came back to me after birth and said she just couldn't believe she had such a beautiful experience, didn't need any pain relief whatsoever, was able to advocate for herself, didn't even need her partner to advocate for her. She was able to advocate for herself and how it really made a difference to the beginning of her of her parenting that baby. Because when you're parenting from a place of feeling broken and traumatised by your birth experience, it's not great for you as a mom. It's not great for your baby. It's not great for your family. So what I'm wanting is for moms to, to, <clears throat> to start their parenting on a good foot. Doesn't mean to say that it has to be, you know, a water birth at home with the birds singing and the, and the roses around the garden. It means I want you to have a positive experience where you were listened to and where you felt respected. We're going to move on to another one of your selections, which is Gash Them by Chuck Fender. Can you tell us why you chose this, please? Okay, so when I hear this, it's on my Spotify list. When I hear this, it just reminds me of all the world's injustices. And in my work as a a black doula, a black birth keeper, um, I think of all the injustices towards, um, you know, black parents-to-be and black families. And I think, when I think of the treatment that I've heard of and I've seen in the system, it gets me all riled up. Um, And I just think, you know, how can humans treat other humans that way? What is it about, you know, some white professionals, white, white health professionals that don't see us as humans? And I just think one day they're gonna have to pay for the injustice and, and the racism that they have, um, you know, that they've, they've made black families experience. And I just think one day, whether you believe in God or the universe or whatever, you've got to answer to how badly you've treated other people. Uh, And this is my tune. Here we go with Chuck Fender, Gash Them. A big man like you, rip off a six-year-old baby. A big man like you, Papa, if you're gonna put nine for a little old lady. A big man like you, born down a school and a top, oh, you're mad sick and crazy. But when God will you, no if now, no but no but tell the Almighty boy maybe Guess them a lie, them For the negative vines that them a bring Guess them a lie, them Me come from my shop and wreck up them senseless killing Guess them a lie, them Boy a free for us with them bag of gun thing Guess them a lie, them the things that women should look out for or preempt or be aware of certain um, things that are more likely to happen to them as women of melanin? Yeah, so we're more, we're more pre, uh, predisposed to things like um, lupus um, as black women. Um, uh, what else? Um, this, this obviously sickle cell um, um, in, in, black, in black folks. Um, I would say... If you are considering, um, you know, getting pregnant, then get in the best health and condition that you can. I'm not saying you've got to bust yourself at the gym, you know, but, you know, be active, eat well. And again, when I say eat well, um, you know, I'm a big believer of uh, eating the foods that really not only nourish your body, but nourish your soul. You know, the colonizers would have, have us thinking that, you know, to eat well, it means to eat it eats salad, you know, all day, every day. I'm not talking about that at all. Eat the food that literally um, feeds you and, and, and nourishes you and makes you feel good. Um, so eat well, move, you know, a bit of exercise. Uh, and more importantly, really think about your, your mental health, um, you know, in your emotional health. So you know, getting some help with maybe managing any stress that you're experiencing is always a good idea before you get pregnant. But if you're already pregnant and you're having stresses, again, 
Think about how you can manage those stress because going into parenthood, going into labor with those stresses is never a, a great thing. It has, you know, effects on our bodies, um, um, blood pressure, for example. So think about how you're going to manage stresses and reduce stresses in your life. Think about who's going to support you because we all need our village. Who will support you and what that support might look like. The people around you aren't mind readers. So people, you know, get pregnant and say, but I thought my family was going to help. And I say, well, what did you help? What did you ask? What did you ask them to do? What help did you ask for? Well, I didn't ask. People aren't mind readers, you know. When you're asking for help, be specific, you know. Could you help me with the shopping? You know, when you, if when you have the baby, can you help, you know, drop some shopping off? Could you cook some, some you know, food that I can put in the freezer? Be really specific with the kind of help that um, you think you might want. And do your research. People tend to opt for hospital birth or the nearest hospital, you know. Do your research. Have a look. Hear what other people have got to say about the hospital. Consider home birth, you know. You don't have to go to your nearest hospital. There are options. So open yourself up and um, do some research. So you spoke earlier on about um, a woman that was going through pain and wasn't offered pain relief. Any women that kind of find themselves in those kind of situations, do you have any advice on how to best deal in them situations or a different way or, or things that maybe possibly they should ask for or be aware of? Sure. Well, first of all, first of all, in the preparation for birth, I really strongly um, recommend you doing um, a hypnobirthing course. So I'm also a hypnobirthing uh, instructor. Hypnobirthing is a way of, it's uh, just a, a toolbox of techniques you can use um, to help manage what you're feeling in labor. And it works. It's based on science. It's not some kind of hocus pocus thing. It really works. So that's the first thing. Secondly, again, do some work, do some research, find out about your rights. Okay, there's a fantastic organization called Birth Rights. Um, you can Google that. Um, they have some great um, information fact sheets on their website. Make sure you find out what your rights are um, during labor, actually during, the, during pregnancy, um, because you do have rights, you know. Find out what your rights are. Make sure whoever you choose to be your birth partner on the day is also aware of your rights and is able to advocate uh, for you and is able to ask questions of the caregivers. Far too many times we feel intimidated by the people wearing the white coats and we don't feel able to ask the questions, okay? What I do as part of the village membership is I also work with the partners or the birth partner. Um, we can book one-to-one -one sessions and have them recorded. And we talk about things like how to advocate for yourself, how to advocate for your partner giving birth, the kinds of questions you may like, you may like to ask, um, and the kind of responses that you should be getting. Um, very, very similar is I've started a, um, an event, a monthly event called Let's Talk Black Birth, happening at my home in Birmingham once a month, we have black moms and their partners, and we talk about a subject each month, a different birth topic each month. And one, a big one is how to advocate for yourself. So you can't just sit back. You can't hand your birth over to the hospital. You need to make sure that you're taking responsibility for yourself and for your birth experience. You cannot, you cannot hand it over. It's like, I don't know, it's like organising a wedding and saying it's okay. I haven't got to try the dress on. I haven't got to research the venues. I haven't got to research the honeymoon, the honeymoon destination. I'll just leave it to chance. You cannot leave these things to chance and expect to come out with a good outcome. And finally, before we get on to that last selection, for those mothers that um, have had their baby, have just recently had their baby and aren't sure whether they're going through, or their partners might not be sure that they're going through the baby blues. What are the signs of that? And do you have any advice on um, ways to alleviate this? Yeah, I mean, it's really important that the person around them is aware of the signs. You know, yes, it's normal for hormonal changes after you've delivered your baby for, you know, for a little bit, a bit of tearful, tearfulness. But when it's, it, it's, it's prolonged, 
when it turns into possibly you know not looking after yourself you know not wanting to even tend to your own uh, physical needs like bathing and eating when it comes to not wishing to um, or being unable to care for your baby's needs you know when it's getting into that territory you really should be seeking some outside help um, there are various kind of perinatal mental health teams around um, around the UK. Lots of them attached to um, to your hospital trust. So that may be your first port of call. Where it's outside of office hours, if you're concerned about somebody who's just had a baby, um, you know, people even turn to the Samaritans can be a um, can be an option for people. Um, there's an organisation called pandas as well um, that you can call up it's really important that you're able to speak to somebody um, who you trust um, and sometimes even just expressing how you're feeling as a mom um, can, can really help but if it's if it's kind of going into the territory of not wanting to look after the baby and maybe neglecting your own health needs then it does need some skilled help Thank you for sharing all of your journey, your heritage and your works with all of us today. I'm just, I just wish we had more time, but we've got this final selection from you, which is I Was Born a Winner by Freddie McGregor. Can you tell us why you chose this selection, please? Uh, my final one. It's, it's gone so quickly. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this, Danielle. It's um, I Was Born a Winner. So this is my anthem, you know. It's like that kind of tune I should play to myself in the morning, actually, as I get up. Because I consider myself a winner. I consider myself, you know, where I've come from, you know, you know, single mom, two kids struggling, you know, rented accommodation, sharing, sharing the place with mice, you know. And now, you know, things are definitely kind of, you know, on the up. I, you know, I'm, I'm in a very comfortable position, um, you know, married to a wonderful uh, guy. Um, life is, is really lovely. I've got you know, beautiful grandchildren and my kids are doing well. And so I consider myself a winner. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to connect with this week's guest, all the links are in the description. If you haven't already subscribed to Reggae Uprising podcast, please do so wherever you are listening. Please also subscribe via Daniil.live. So that's D-A-N-I-E-A-L dot live. And if you go to Daniil.live, you can also connect with me there. That link is also in the description as well. I'm going to leave you with the high vibrations of Freddie McGregor. I was born a winner. I hope you have a wonderful week. Make sure you're back here next Wednesday for a fresh and new episode. As always, blessed love. Now